0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Welcome. It's good to have you here. We are in the midst of a series. We're in the midst. We're one we had the introduction last week we 're second week in, and this series is called "Faith for Exiles." This series was inspired by some research done by my friend uh, David Kinneman and a book he wrote with his friend mark Matlock um, and I spoke about this last week. We have a bunch of copies available uh, on our bookstall, um, but this is not just like plugging a friend 's book this was Uh, a bunch of research that I've been knowing Dave has been doing for some time and really it looks at the future of the church, 26 nations uh, looking particularly at the next generation or millennials, actually millennials are actually getting old. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of Zoomers coming up and they're cooler than you, deal with it. Uh, We've had to live through this before, every generation from the boomers onwards has defined themselves as youth. So never define yourself in a youth generation because you'll get old and, uh, and they'll define themselves against you. But the whole point of really this, this series is what is God doing next in the world? Looking clearly at the challenges before us, but also reaching out with hope and looking at the world through a lens of hope. So in order to do this, I want to begin with the scriptures and I want to begin with um, the book of Daniel. And uh, so we're going to get you to open that. Uh, there are Bibles in front of you on the uh, pew shelves in front of you and uh, we're going to look at Daniel. We're going to begin at 1 one. So Daniel chapter 1, that's the big letter, you'll see there, if you're just learning to find your way around the Bible, and then the smaller, not letter, number, uh, number one is the big number, and then you have the smaller number, so what, the big one tends to be chapter numbers, and the smaller one is the verse numbers, so chapter one, verse one, but before we get there, I just want to just set this up a little bit more, and uh, that really where this is going is that churches are healthy The Christian faith is healthy, the mission of Jesus in the world is healthy when people are living out a posture of being a resilient disciple. Dave uh, and his team looked across these 26 nations and realised that there are essentially four groups that people who grew up in the church now fall into. Uh, The first one is prodigals, they're people who grew up or had a faith at some stage who have left the Christian faith, who would no longer see themselves as Christians. In Australia, that's 38%. Nomads were those who maybe still have some belief but fallen out of the pattern of attending church and Christian community, which is less a deliberate rejecting of Christianity and more just something you fall out of. Don't ever underestimate how easy it is to fall out of the habit of meeting together, hence why the New Testament encouraged us to not fall out of the habit of meeting together. Uh, So the the, uh, nomads were 32%. The habitual churchgoers were people who come to church, you could use the word cultural Christians could be used here, who are people who are in the habit of going to church regularly, may even be involved in small groups, even leading, but actually their life and their beliefs are yet to really be transformed by Jesus. And you can be a habitual, uh, habitual church goer all your life. So that's 22%. In Australia, we have a lot less of these people. Other countries have a lot more. Places like Mexico, the United States, a lot bigger group here. And then we have the resilient disciples, 8%. Now, some of you may see this and go, well, that's a low number. So if you break this all down, 70% of millennials, people 1835, have actually left an engagement with faith, either in belief or attending a body of Christ. But I'm actually looking at this with incredible hope, because I understand how the kingdom works. I actually understand more and more. I've been reading heaps about strategy uh, recently to reflect on this. It's actually not about how big the army is, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And we don't just have to have a fight, we've actually got Christ as our strength. So, what we're going to do is look then that the goal that Dave and Mark then come up with for the church at this moment in the world, this unparalleled moment, It says, the goal of discipleship today is to develop Jesus' followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion. What has changed is culture in the West for a while wasn't like necessarily Christian, but it was almost neutral Christian. But we're now at a point where culture is actually coercing people out of faith. Really interesting change and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. And last week I said, this is a line in the sand for red, we're not just gonna put on programs for habitual churchgoers, which is what so much of church strategy has been for the last 30 years, to help people have some nice experience and then continue on their merry way, stuck in a religious pattern, That slowly turns into the consumption of religious goods and services. So red is defining itself. This is a great quote to define where we want to be, to build resilient, faithful disciples in the face of cultural coercion who don't just grin and bear it, but actually realize that there's vibrant life in the spirit to be had. So I spoke about last week too, that what Dave and his team discovered was that despite all of this pressure, pressure creates diamonds and resilient disciples were actually becoming better disciples, that that 8% is actually becoming more pure in their following of Jesus. This is a dynamic people did not expect. Yes, that pressure means some leave, but it means those left behind who really give their hearts to Jesus are becoming better disciples. And so the team behind this research studied who those disciples were and what they were doing, which meant that their faith was flourishing and resilient in the midst of this cultural pressure. And so they came up with these five different factors or patterns that actually these resilient disciples were doing, And it didn't matter whether you were in a poorer community in Mexico, whether you were living in an apartment in a big city of Brazil, or you were in downtown Vancouver or Melbourne, there was this pattern that they began to see across all those different contexts. And we're going to go through them over the next few weeks. So the first one is pens out, guns out, sun's out. Well, the sun ain't out, so get your pens out. Resilient disciples experience intimacy with Jesus. Foundational to the life of a resilient disciple is people who experience intimacy, relational connection with Jesus. Resilient disciples experience intimacy with Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, to get there, we're going to get to Daniel 1. So, let's go to Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. So we have the people of God, who God has called to follow him, who have been rescued from Egypt and slavery, commanded to actually be a holy people given over to God, to be a symbol of God's justice and love and righteousness in the world who so often their hearts are not set after God, they're set after other things and eventually the implications of that come upon them. And what we have here is effectively an invasion. The people of Judah are invaded by a giant foreign power. And to give some sort of background to this, I just want to look a little bit at some of these details. Often in scriptures, you can jump over these details. So we have the king of Judah, who has been beaten in battle and invaded by a character known as King Nebuchadnezzar. I actually enjoy saying that, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know why. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He had three titles. Uh, He had the title, number one, the King of Babylon. That's what he was. But he was also the King of Sumer and Akkad. I'll get back to that in a second. But lastly, as a man of humility, his title was King of the Universe. I just would love to have that on a business card and, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, King of the Universe. I did a course. Essentially, what was happening at this time was that. There was various power battles, as there always has been in the world. The major powers were fighting. You had Egypt. There is infighting within this part of the world. But King Nebuchadnezzar had defeated his enemies, and all of a sudden he became the power player in sort of the global politics of this particular region. And so he, this period of history is actually called the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Now, not just the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And the reason that he called himself the King of Sumer and Akkad, they were actually older civilizations, which the Babylonians looked back to as their glory years. So much of the Babylonian imagination was looking back, they believed that they were ethnically superior, that their ancestors were these sort of like half God, half human people who had this incredible divine knowledge. And so that knowledge was almost hidden and they'd been culturally humiliated, but now they were back. They believed that they were the cradle of civilization, the Sumerians, the Akkadians were actually their their ancestors and now they were back. Now, this is often what uh, empires or powerful countries do. If you go to Washington or London and you walk around and you look at some of the great buildings, they look like Roman or Greek buildings. So, you try and gain power now by looking back to something in the past. If you look at global politics now, Vladimir Putin builds his sort of current power on this reimagining of what the great Russian Empire was of the 19th century. Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, looks back and is casting this vision he calls China Dream, where he looks back at when China was the middle kingdom at the center of the world make Babylon great, make America great. We have these statements, perhaps not so much in Australia. Um, well, I think maybe Daniel and Bjorn's attempts to be, bring back the myth of the Bushranger and their beards. <laughs> <laughs> that great point, so if you're carrying any gold home in your, in your Cobb & Co coach, beware in the car park. <laughs> but here was this incredible empire Filled with power. What we have a picture here is the ziggurat or the temple of worship, this meeting point of heaven and earth at the top there where literally the gods would come down and sort of sup with the priests that this was the the basis of the power. That he was saying, I am king of the universe because I'm the most powerful and my temple is the biggest and we are the conduit to heaven. So this is what this was all about. It wasn't just political and economic and military power. This was theological power. This was also spiritual warfare. So what had happened was that he and his forces had come into Jerusalem where the Israelites had their meeting place with God, which was less about how amazing the temple was. Solomon built an amazing temple, but it wasn't exactly what God was asking in the way he built it. They actually were centred on the fact that God wanted to dwell with His people. And so the Babylonians come into that meeting place and actually take stuff out of the temple and they take it back to Babylon. So this is literally destroying everything that Israel holds sacred. But this isn't just a military and economic and a political invasion, this is a theological invasion. Jerusalem was set up to be a city based on God. And so, let's read on. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, another incredible, powerful political figure at this time, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So, to go to Israel, not just to bring back items from the temple, but bring back a bunch of people, the next generation. He wants to weaken Israel, Judah, by stealing and capturing the next generation. Verse 4, young men, without any physical defect handsome, showing every aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, there's two elements here. So, in other words, I want the best and brightest. Because if I'm taking the best and brightest, I'm weakening you. And by stealing the next generation, particularly those who could be of influence and service to what God is doing in your country, because my God is bigger and more triumphant over your God, so I'm actually going to take these people. Now, the second point, which seems weird, is why does he want good-looking, handsome young men, but particularly the giveaway verses without any physical defect. This isn't just that, so he just has this, you know, bunch of male models hanging around. This is actually an offering. When you sacrificed cattle, animals in temples at this time in the ancient Near East, you actually wanted them to be without defect. This isn't just a group of young men who are going to be really good-looking, hang around his palace to make him look good. It isn't some sort of Taylor Swift squad entourage. (laughs) This is actually a group of the next generation who are being sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. This is theological warfare. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So this is also... So that they will come and then they will be influenced away from their beliefs, their theology, their culture, their prayer life, their life with Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and now be completely turned over in their identity, their beliefs into something else, Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. So I'm going to capture you, it sounds good coming from the king's table, but basically this is really about a sign of he owns them. I own you, your old identity is gone, you are now my possession, you are a sacrifice, I've killed your God, Your God is humiliated and now I'm actually gonna say, you are nothing and I'm gonna rebuild you from the ground up. You will no longer be a Jew. I am actually going to practice the art of assimilation. Assimilation where you take a people group or a person and you completely change their worldview, everything about them because this is a power move and this is a power move against your, your enemy. And so these young men find themselves at this point where they are under incredible, this isn't just cultural pressure, this is cultural coercion. This is, I am changing everything about you and around you, nothing's safe anymore. When you were back in Judah, when you go to the temple and worship, when you could stay in a Jewish community and study the Torah, when you had everyone around you believing the same thing and all the different social structures pointing towards the worship of the one God of Israel, it's easy to believe. In a sense, you just assimilate into a culture. You just very fortunate that that actual culture is pointing towards the truth. But now you're in a very different land. You're in a spiritual and physical exile, and you're not just in exile where they're going to let you believe what you want. These government, the power, the multi-function of this giant cultural force is coming against you, and it is what one desire to reprogram you so you actually become a Babylonian. By the end of this three-year period, you are meant to be a Babylonian. Verse 6, among those who were chosen (coughs) were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Zariah Abednego. Now, when you take someone's name, particularly in the ancient worlds, where if you knew someone's real name, do you remember the story of the burning bush? What's your name? I am. God would not let you say his name. Because once you had someone's name, you had power over them. And what this is saying, yeah, that whole thing where you are worshipping the one true God, your identity, which is rooted in Yahweh, that was the name of God. Even today, religious Jews won't even say it. They say Hashem, the name. That actually the name of God, that, 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 that culture that you were in, your biblical given, this name, Daniel, it has gone. So not only am I going to assimilate you, I'm going to tell you who your identity is. And so... When you're at a moment like this, there is such a disruption of who you are. Now, often when you read a biblical chapter, one way to read the Bible is to ask the question, where's the hinge? Often in a chapter, it can be a psalm or a scripture, there's a hinge moment where it's heading in one direction, and you're like, oh no, and then it changes. We're about to read the I would say the hinge verse of this chapter, but also there's a hinge word in the midst of it. See if you can find it. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief officials for this permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, there's an element here where this has been speculated about. uh, Was it because they were Jewish and they wanted to eat kosher? Well, that falls down a little bit because there was nothing unkosher about wine. So if it was kosher, he would have just said, like, I, I choose not to eat pig or shellfish or things which are not kosher because that's what the Hebrew Scriptures and, and the law, the Torah, prevented. But he says the wine. And the reason many people believe, scholars, that he says no to these things <laughs> are that these were food that also had religious symbols behind them, that there's actually stuff given to the idols of Babylon. But also, this is also a protest. It's like, I'm not going to let you own me. In the midst of this, I'm actually going to say no. Now, think about it, you're captured, you're actually really anxious you're worried, where's your next meal coming from? You're not home where you can go and, you know, know the local farmers and go to the market to buy food. This is the one power he has over you, food. He actually gives you a ration every day. The king owns you, I will control you. This is, this is actually how people are brainwashed. They actually control when food comes. Prisoners get food at certain times of day. And He says, no, the one thing which seems secure, that daily ration I'm actually gonna say no, I'm not gonna be owned. And you know, I think the hinge, that's the hinge verse, because this is where there's a big no to Babylon. But I love this word, resolved. The hinge word is resolved. At this point, the cultural force is coming against this one young man to turn his back on God, and all the plans and purposes God has for him, and he has to make this decision. Now this goes against so much of what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us to go with the heart, go with the flow, just actually go with what everyone is doing. Increasingly, our culture is not defined anymore by some hierarchy or institution like in Babylon. We now look at what is everyone else saying? What's everyone saying on the internet? That's why I have these articles where something or other happened and they'll have like five tweets underneath saying, these people on the internet agree that this non-story is actually a story. And then you click on the Twitter things, and it's like some guy with like 20 followers, you know, who's been just putting up pictures of cats for the last three years. How is this person authority? Because we're now so desperate to actually just, just go with what everyone else is feeling. But when you take such a stance, passivity ends in assimilation. At this moment, this is a strategic moment in the church. This is a strategic moment in this time of digital Babylon where we don't just face a Babylonian empire, we actually face an empire which is digitised. And like in Australia, I talked about those different countries where, yes, there are different countries which are looking at great leaders who will actually grab the past and make the present glorious. Well, we I mean, don't I go to school and sort of salute pictures of Scott Morrison and go on marches singing glories to his name. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the analysis that came out of the election were like, people voted for him because he seemed like an ordinary bloke. He seemed like us. People want to vote for themselves. Our king of the universe is not Nebuchadnezzar II, you know, Lord of Sumer and Arkad. It's actually the person in the selfie. It's actually us. And weirdly, the captivity we face is actually to our own desires and a culture which says you can have it all. When we passively accept that, the weird thing is you do not find yourself. You do not find freedom. You actually find captivity. So Daniel resolved to not defile himself. He resolved, and that word is, like Psalm 108 verse one says, "'Oh God, my heart is steadfast, That sense that my deepest inner who I am is actually made this decision for you and I'm not going to be swayed, I'm not going to be moved. So the hinge at this point which builds resilient disciples is that word resolve. And it's really interesting, if you look at resolve and resilience and you look at the etymology of those two words, they both have a similar meaning. Solve you know, comes from the Latin, meaning to actually dissolve something. Solve is something which is a solvent you pour it; it's going to eat something. So in other words, when you are solved, you actually just disappear into nothingness. To resolve is to be, no, I am not going to melt away. I am not going to dissolve. I'm actually entering a process where I am not going to be washed away by the liquidity of this time and place. Resilience, very similar meaning. Uh, Sillience actually means, again, this thing where you sort of lose, you, you, you lose structural integrity. And resilience effectively means bouncing back. So you have bounced back from a challenge which has come against you. Resilient disciples are not people who haven't been tested, they're actually people who are facing tremendous pressure, but in the face of that pressure, that pressure to dissolve who you are, what you believe, what God has for you, you actually bounce back and it's like something where you hit it and it comes back and slaps you in the face, like standing on a rake and whoa! That's resilience. Be a rake in the garden. <laughs> now, I'm going to read on verse 9. Now, God has called the, had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid my lord and king who has assigned your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now listen to this, this is, this is when you are a resilient disciple in a culture that's against you, you are continually having to seek God on heaps of decisions. There is continual ambiguity before you. It's not always a safe and comfortable place where you just got to game out the right decisions. Here, he said no, but this isn't just like he says no and then the Babylonian Empire falls. He has to walk a path. He doesn't want this guy who is actually, doesn't sound like a super bad guy, to actually lose his head. That actually when you choose to be a resilient disciple, you're not saying yes to safety as we understand it in culture and guaranteed comfortability. What you're actually saying is the safety that can only be found in following God and bringing every decision before him. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard over whom the chief had A chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. For he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. This is not an argument about veganism. This is actually about spiritual warfare. This is not about, is it better to not eat meat? That's an argument for another place. It's actually not what's happening in the text here. This is actually, I'm going to say no to the way which everyone else thinks is sane and normal in our culture, and I'm going to go a different way, and I'm going to go that different way, and I'm going to trust God, and even though I'm denied certain pleasures or certain, you know, applause from my culture, I'm actually going this different way because I believe God is actually with me. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding, all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. The blessing came first after a sacrifice first came this sacrifice and this resolve and then God equips. Often we want the equipping and the blessing before the resolve and the sacrifice. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Verse 20 in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. What this is saying is, you don't just become a resilient disciple because it's the right thing to do. You don't just become a resilient disciple to resist and bounce back from the pressure of the world. The answer to the world's questions, the answer to everything the world is asking, the troubles of the world are answered when people follow God with all their hearts. That is how we actually partner with God in what He is doing in the world. This is the asymmetrical strategy that I spoke of last week where a boy with no armour and seemingly no military training defeats a giant who everyone's terrified of because he actually understands that it's not about what weaponry has, it's actually about his relationship with God, fostered in the hidden places and the isolated places, that's how God works. And at this moment of history, this is not details and research in which we get scared of, this is actually God showing us how he always works, using the weak things of the world to confound the strong using the seemingly foolish things of our, of our faith to actually make fun of and defeat the supposedly wise things of the world. Now, David had a sling that he took into battle and he had five stones. And so what I want to give you is just real quickly, five stones, which I believe are essential, looking at the research, looking at what we've learned at Red which enable you to become a resilient disciple or be a better resilient disciple. Again, get ready to write them down. Number one, resolve to live a relationship with Jesus rather than just engage in religious activity. This came through really clearly in the research. The difference between a habitual Christian and a resilient disciple is the habitual Christian is still doing religious stuff. And one of the really interesting and subversive things about Christianity is actually this continual issue of heart posture. That actually we can do all the religious stuff, we can come and take communion, we can sing worship, we can play worship, we can even preach, we can plant churches, we can do all these different things, help the poor, but so much of it if not done with the right heart posture, actually just becomes an extension of pride. And so resilient disciples are those who actually do this because of an intimate, conversational relationship with Jesus. And the missing piece for many people in this room who perhaps are like, man, am I in that habitual space, is actually, you think you have met Jesus, but you don't really know him yet. You have had the enemy sell you a fast one that God is angry, that God is distant, that He's like some sort of policeman father who just wants to smash you over the head with a big stick. But actually, Jesus on the cross shows His immense love for the world. There is a cost, there is justice. It's not like this, hey no problem. We have done stuff as humans that's rebelled against God, as the human race and as individuals. But Jesus takes that on Himself on the cross and reaches out a hand to you and says, I want to be in relationship with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be talking to you. He's sitting with you all the time and you just don't realise it. He's walking with you. He'll be in the car on the way home, He'll be sitting next to you when you sit and watch TV. He'll be watching over you as you sleep. Resilient disciples realize that at the core of this, this is actually about a relationship. Now, the religious activity, it can go either way, it's actually what's the heart behind it. When we do those things I just mentioned, when we serve the poor and we pray and we do worship, and when we do them because of the overflow of a relationship, that's a completely different thing. But you have to resolve. Notice the word resolve. This does not just happen passively. Number two, we have our names taken away. Just as the Babylonians took names away, our world continually takes our names away in a very different process. We don't have a Babylonian official just reading out a new name for us. We have sold to us continually the myth that you can create your culture. We live in 21st century modernity, which is all about you defining who you are. Buy this product. Believe this thing. Hang out with these people. Project this incredible winning life to the world. And you know what? This task is doing that. You can be the young mum who's like an incredible young mum, looks fantastic, is exercising, is putting out pictures online, has got a, a, a side gig, is, is going doing... This. Like we can't do all this stuff. You can't be this this guy who's just going to the gym and doing this and doing everything in time for your kids, but working really hard and got all these great hobbies and watches every downloadable sport possible on the KO app. Like you actually don't have the hours in the week to do all this. We actually are fooling ourselves, continually trying to actually live up to what is a faulty identity generating machine. Now people in traditional cultures were often told, you're just this, you're just, you were born here, you were born in the Punjab, you're a Punjabi, you're a Sikh, that's who you are, this is who you're gonna marry, this is what you're gonna do for a job. Now, we don't live in that world, most of us don't live, unless you're visiting from a place like that today. But we are told, you have gotta create it, and once you create it, it's probably gonna be out of fashion in a few weeks anyway. So we are in this world which continually, now one of the things I've been fascinated lately, um, I'm often trying to like, work out where trends go, and I've been watching videos lately about this whole new thing where people are defining themselves as post-human. And it sounds bonkers, um, but like, this is now where academia in many places are going. I saw an interview, an extended interview, with a guy who went to Southeast Asia, got these various, um, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, operations um, to remove parts of his body. Um, and and has actually had his face changed to look like an alien. He he sees himself not as human, but as an alien. And you start to read, like, uh, academia and the cutting edge of where academia is going. You've got these people now whose primary identity is based around um, strange things, anime characters, um, various animals, wolves. There's this whole nothing of people whose primary identity is wolves. Um, and that's just extreme out here, but we're in a world where we're just almost in a blender of trying to come up with who your identity is, and it's a gigantic pressure on us. Now, there is factors that different elements of us make up who we are, where you were born, what you do for a job, your cultural background, the way you view the world. But what Scripture says primarily, 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 is that your identity is in Christ. That is an identity that cannot change. I've sat with people in my pastoral experience who are in the hospital, and all of a sudden in a month everything's changed. They were going along happy and healthy, they have an accident, they get a cancer diagnosis, and all of a sudden everything they built their life on is completely gone in a minute. You could be 15 minutes from everything you identify as who you are now changing like that. The only unshakable thing is actually your identity in Christ. One of my heroes is Watchman Knee. Watchman Knee is just like, just pushes so deeply into his identity in Christ. And then at the end of his life, he disappears into a work camp. Now he stopped writing, and we don't know what, you know, don't know many of the details. Never saw his wife again. Everything who he was, even the ministry that he had writing books, everything he had to give up. Now, do I believe for one second in that, in that work camp, he didn't know who he was. I believe he knew who he was. Your identity, who were you when no one is looking? That is absolutely central. There is an act now of a resolved and actually subversive revolutionary claiming that I am in Christ. My identity is primarily found in Jesus because when Jesus looks at you, He sees someone who died on the cross, he sees someone washed clean, it doesn't matter what your past is, it's what Jesus has actually done for you. Resilient disciples resolve to find their primary identity in Jesus. They also resolve to make Jesus the central organising principle of their lives, the central organising principle of your life. What this means is there's no part of your life which you go, Jesus here but not over here. That's the mark of a habitual Christian, I'm sorry, That actually, Jesus has the say on what job you take. Jesus has the say on what decision you make regarding what people you hang out with, whether you get married, whether you have a child, or everything, where you go, where you live, what you spend your money on. At the centre of it, Jesus has the call on everything. And that the centre of Him in your life, everything in your life, to use an old-fashioned but brilliant statement, is on the altar before God. And I've had that moment so many times where I'm wrestling with something, I'm worried about something, and finally, I go for weeks, and then I'm just like, "God will just be waiting gently. You get to that point, like, this thing, that relationship, that thing, should I be doing this? What about that? Ah, oh, should I give that up?" And God's just waiting. Jesus is just like, "I'll wait this out." And then you're sort of exhausted,. Like, ah, 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 ah. And then just when you shut up enough in your own internal dialogue, you need to put on the, put on the altar mark. And you're like, oh, no! Ah! It's like, just like your skin's grown around. Ah! Rip it out. Ah! And then you put it on the thing and you ah! And it doesn't own you. Gollum gives back the ring. There's nothing that we're not called to put On the altar. Everything. Resilient disciples make Jesus the central, organising principle of their life. They realise that by doing that, they go on a journey. They go on a journey where all of a sudden they begin to change. Because if everything's on the altar and the things which are of the flesh or that which resists God is on the altar, that means something's going to happen, you're going to change. So disciples who are resilient resolve to be transformed into Jesus' image. My goal is next year, if you talk to me, I will be more Christ-like. My goal is that in 10 years, that through surrendering to Jesus, I become more and more holy. The Scriptures actually talk about that all glory is God's, but when humans actually choose to give the whole of their lives to God, they begin to reflect His glory. Scripture says that we're placed above angels, that humans have their own glory. And that's not when we win Olympic medals and climb Mount Everest and, I don't know, create a robot that can clean your room in five minutes. It's actually when we give all glory to God. I don't know if you've had that experience. I've had this experience numerous times in my life. I remember this moment when I was, at, I was in my 20s and I was on my young Christian leader who knows everything and has all the answers phase which often happens to young Christian ladies in their 20s. I spoke at a church fielding questions and then I was going up to my car and this guy had been there, hadn't said much. And he came up to me, he was in an electric wheelchair, really struggled to speak. And he just began to talk to me about God, how much he loved God, what God was doing in his life, how absolutely privileged he felt, and how abundantly happy he was. I remember this, this scene, he, he talked to me, turned the electric wheelchair, it's, the sense memory of this is burned into my mind, and then crossed went over the road, and I saw him just go up this laneway. I'm like, does he live down there? I just didn't know, what, like what, like, and that image of him going up a laneway is everything that the world recoils from that someone like that could have abundant life in Christ who doesn't have so many things that the rest of the world has. And I realized at that, that moment, that in speaking to that man, I just saw Jesus. When you speak to someone and you're like, wow, you come away from that conversation, like now, what a great girl, what a great guy, like wow. No, you actually go, glory to God. Because they're just like, they're like, I'm here, but I'm just pointing to God. And weirdly, that brings up these wonderful things in the free human being, where everything that is about us points to God resilient disciples resolve to be transformed into Jesus' image. Lastly, resilient disciples live life as worship, as Roman tells us. That worship, yes, it's singing. What we're about to do is part of singing praises to God. The scriptures ordain us to do that. But the big difference between resilient disciples and habitual Christians is actually resilient disciples live lives of prayer. The rates, I didn't put them in this presentation, I might put them up in, in the weeks to come, but the difference, like you look at the, the actual going to church stuff between resilient disciples and, and habitual Christians is not that much different, but you look at the prayer life, you look at the scripture reading, you look at the, the taking the word of God as authority over the whole of your life, the actual giving to things, the actual serving the poor, that actually this is not just about Sunday Christianity. That what is going on here is that decision to make Jesus the organizing principle of your life flows into everything. Do just these five things and you'll be surprised. And in praying to end, like I've been praying all week and, and just in the last few months, I felt God say, Mark, ask for surprises. I had a few fascinating little things this week, which I just want to end on. First of all, I did a podcast um, with a guy in the States this week, and he talked about, once we were actually off there, he talked about the fact that he'd been studying strategy, which I've been looking at recently. And he said he was looking at the strategy around contemporary warfare, and he said contemporary warfare is less about actually beating the enemy and smashing everything and blowing everything up, to now actually what they are calling narrative warfare, where actually, at the end of the day, it's whose story is winning. We're continually bombarded with these stories, and the story that we're continually told is that faith in the world is disappearing. And that's just how it is. And you're an embattled minority, believing some antiquated thing, and soon enough you'll get with the program. Now... This week, we had a meeting with a group of people who are part of a ministry that's involved with doing ministry with people in Iran. Iran was one of the most difficult places to do ministry for many years missionaries went there, there was a small church of mainly Armenians and Assyrians, but particularly outside of that ethnic group, in the dominant ethnic group of that nation, so few people coming to faith. People went and sowed and tried to set up churches, just really difficult. And then in 1979, there was the Iranian Revolution, which made it even harder. You had a hardline Islamic fundamentalist, really, group of various leaders come and take over the country, and, and, and it became even harder for the church. And talking to this group this week, of the story of what God is doing around Iranian people. By 2020, it's estimated that a million people in Iran will have come to faith in Jesus. This is staggering. This is literally a revival happening at our time. That's even happening in our city. And talking to Christina, who's one of the women with this ministry, I'm like, is your, you know, what's your cultural background? She had an accent. I presume she was from Iran. She said, no, I'm Brazilian, but I'm background Armenian from millions in the Middle East and I said that's fascinating because I'm involved with the Brazilian Baptist Church and the Brazilian Baptist Church in the midst of an economic recession in Brazil has determined not to cut its giving and its three focuses for the church in Brazil is actually the church in Iran, the church in China and the church in North Korea. And you think about how those nations are spoken of in the world, they're seen as like danger and threats and, and there's this new cold war between the West and these sort of nations. And, and what Christina said to me is, what Brazil has is these nations love Brazil, that North Koreans and Iranians want to come to Brazil and hear from Brazilians. Why? Because what do they think of Brazil? They think of the soccer team think of the Salasau, Pelé, this style of playing soccer, that the bizarre thing that God is using the success of the Brazilian soccer team to actually advance mission in the world. That's a ridiculous surprise. that I didn't realise that North Koreans are being snuck into Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro to actually be trained and funded by Brazilian Christians, actually sent back to, to North Korea and the church is spreading in North Korea. The church, Iranians are actually being trained in Brazil to go back. This is just crazy surprises. I got a message uh, just on on Friday (coughs) from my friend Johannes Hartel, who's a Christian in Germany. I spoke last week of the fact that you've got such low, like 4% um, of resilient disciples in Germany, but he's doing this incredible prayer movement that's just growing. He's running a conference now (coughs) of 5,000 Christians so many of them resident disciples from the German-speaking nations in, in uh, Augsburg, where he lives. But what's so interesting, he sent me this message, a voice message. He said, Mark, I'm on the way to Cairo. And he's going to Cairo to preach in a church. Now, Cairo is, a, is, a, is part of Egypt, which has had the, this revolution. It's had all this political turmoil. There's been, there's been recent protests there. And he, then I got a video of him preaching in a church in Cairo, literally, across the road from Tahrir Square, where the Egyptian uh, part of the Arab Spring happened, where literally all this political turmoil. For weeks and weeks, the world's media is focused on Tahrir Square. And here's this video of Johannes preaching, and he's just filming this absolutely packed church filled with all different ages, but so many young adults down the front praising and crying out to God in the midst of a country which had a spate of church bombings. I was expecting to go there and it's going to be like, no one's going to be there, but it's literally just packed with people. This is God doing surprises at this moment. This is a different story than what we're hearing in the world. Last story, I about three years ago read an article when I was thinking about, you know, prodigals and people giving up their faith. And it was the story of a celebrity, uh, who grown up, I used to be in the Salvation Army, and he'd grown up Salvation Army, and he had, from birth, and then he just talked about how he gave up his faith and walked away from his part, being part of the church that is the Salvation Army. And it was just a classic, classic story of a prodigal. I've heard it so many times, started doubting things, hypocrisy in the church, got you know, a career in, in entertainment and walked away from faith. Still had this love for music, as so many Salvation Army people. When I was in Salvation Army, I was the only non-musical person in the entire <laughs> global movement. And, um, but you know, had that love of music, but had walked away from his faith. That person was James Gordon, the British comedian, late, late show. And then yesterday, I'm watching this video, and like, this is how nuts the world is at the moment. And he does a thing called carpool karaoke. Yeah, he did it with Kanye West. And it was plain karaoke and he's on a plane with Kanye West's entire Sunday service choir and they take off and they're just singing all these gospel songs and I'm watching James Corden then have Kanye West who three years ago when I read this article about uh, James Corden giving up his faith could never imagine that in three years this would happen and bizarro world Kanye West sharing the gospel with James Corden, surrounded by this incredible African-American choir in a plane in the air. Now, if you're not getting this, this is surprising and not normal. <laughs> and I could never have imagined it. And all my cultural prognostinations, prog- prognostinations and thinking of the future, I never predicted that happening. I believe that we are in a time where God actually wants to do some surprises. And doesn't want to just do surprises in the air with Kanye West, you know. It, if you're going to be playing, if he invites you he's playing, go. But, like, I don't know what's going to happen there. But the fact is that he also wants to do some surprises in this room. Some people are like, man, I've done this. I'm just hanging there. He wants to do a surprise. Some people who have actually felt hurt and let down by the church, he wants to do a new surprise. People who, when I talked about an intimate relationship with Jesus, are like, I don't know, that's not me. He wants to do a surprise. He actually wants to do surprises at the moment. And he is inviting you to experience life with him in the Spirit. He wants to build at this time some resilient disciples. He wants to do a new thing. Can you feel it? So let's stand. I don't know, preach for like four hours. Um, God, we want to be surprised by you. At the moment, whether it's across the square in Tahir, and, in, in Tahir Square, in Cairo, whether it's, it's people living under the, the, the regime of the North Korean government who at this moment in little apartments in places like Iran are actually crying out to you, whether it's people in a city like Melbourne, God, you are doing something in the world at the moment. Father, we're in the midst of the biggest prayer movement ever seen in human history is happening right now across the world it's actually staggering how many people are gathering in bars after hours in in quiet prayer rooms in big cathedrals something is happening in the world at the moment and father we want to be part of that so jesus at this moment of cultural coercion we actually want to be resolved we want to have resolve first of all we want to resolve that we're following you second we want to say no to just being liquefied by this culture which fragments us which tries to offer us faux identities which ultimately enslave us jesus we actually want to make a stand at this moment so father with resolve in our steadfast hearts we actually say yes to you So Spirit, we know that there's people in all different places in this room. Father, there's people who just come back to church, never been to church, been in their church for a while. People whose hearts are in two places. Habitual Christians, resilient disciples, feeling dismayed. Whatever it may be, the excited, the downcasted, the grieving, the celebrating. In Jesus' name, we say, Spirit, come. Do your work. Give us resolve. Give us steadfast hearts for this moment. Let us not assimilate or be captive to digital Babylon. But instead, Father, we want to be with the city of God that you're building in the world. So just now as we worship, spirit move amongst us. We pray.